All right, so we're in Luke 7, 36 through 50 this morning. This is a standalone sermon. Uh, I thought it would be a good bridge between what we've talked about in Advent and what we're preparing for in the Psalms. And uh, because I I think you guys are going to think that uh, the Psalms, if you're not careful as we look at the mission of God and the things that we ought to be doing, you may hear that in a legalistic key. And you may hear that as we're just going to get the stew beat out of us for six weeks about all the things like we don't love the poor, we don't, we don't love internationals, we don't, we don't love our neighbors, we don't love any of these things. And so I, I want to set you up well to be able to hear that because, because, again, remember that what you're going to hear in the Psalms about mission is a statement to the church as a whole, not you solely as an individual. Each of us has gifts and we each play a part in in point of, uh, point of fact, Brian and Mandy, their gifts and callings have led them to serve in India. And so that's their main calling. And for some of you, it is to make money and be able to give it to missionaries. And that's the role that you play. And some of you are prayer warriors. And some of you are fantastic at serving the poor. And that's what you should do. But collectively, we should be able to assess as the church as a, as a whole that we are reflecting the totality of the heart of God. So I wanted you to be able to hear grace before you hear what's going to be probably some pretty challenging things that the Lord's going to have to say to us, not just me saying it to you, um, about some of the areas where we probably, we, we definitely need to grow and hopefully will as both individuals and a church family. And so this is one of my all-time favorite passages I've probably preached it more than any other, uh, and it's, it's amazing to me how there's even things that I see in this passage, this pastime studying, that I've never seen before. And the beauty of who Christ is, the beholding the Lamb of God, was so rich for me. Uh, I hope it translates to, to some extent. And so um, as, we, as we look at this, uh, the title of the sermon is The Defining Marks of the Forgiven. And that's worship of God and love of others. And you may recognize that from the, the two greatest commandments, right? So when Christ is asked by the lawyer, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? He says, and as Christ always does, notice he doesn't actually do what the guy asked him to do in Toto, right? He asked for one, just give me one thing to do. And, and that, that way, well, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's pretty easy to start. And then love sinners, neighbors, um, people close to you that uh, ought reflect his image and fail to. And so, so that's a pretty tall order, but that is the defining marks of the forgiven, and we are granted every single um, thing that we need to be able to do that. Not perfectly, it's going to be messy because people are messy, right? And I do want to say, Josh did say that there's, you know, nobody's done it perfectly. That's actually not true. There's one person, I won't mention their name because I don't want to embarrass them, but they gave me a book today. And uh, they love their neighbors so well. I can just tell you, it's my love language, and I'm so thankful for that person. So they got a crown in heaven, right? Uh, if, if, if I have any say. So, uh, but but what we want to focus on, what we want to learn from this, is that Jesus Christ forgives sinners through grace alone, by faith alone, so that they can be set free to worship God and love others in redeemed freedom. And what a gift that He does that to, for us. And so the question I would open with is, what are you most known for? Every one of you. Are, are, are known for something, right? Like uh, my kids, anytime they call, they say, oh, where's dad sitting at a coffee shop reading? <laughs> and 93% of the time, that's probably true because they choose to call at a weird time. That's their fault, not mine. Uh, and so that, also I'm known for this. Somebody gave me a movie last night and said, hey, I want you to watch this, but don't rip it apart, I am known as a wicked critic of all things culture and media. 
But I do admit it's subjective. I'm not autonomous. And so it's every time somebody says, hey, check this out, there's always this provisio afterward that I have to, a writer I have to sign. I'm not going to ruin your favorite verse or movie or whatever. And so that's some of what I'm known for. Now, for some of you, it's heavier than that. That, that what you're known for is being cruel or unloving. Or you're known for a mistake that you made uh, in the past and can't seem to shake or let go. Or, or you're known for your crippling self-doubt. Or you're known for your inability to see yourself as created in the image of God. Or you're known for um, just, just not being fun to be around. That's so crippling to us. And it's such, a, it's such a, an absurd reduction of the complexity of a human being to reduce them to this one thing, isn't it? We're so much more complex than that. And our lives are unfolding, right? How many of you that are 40 and above believe exactly what you thought you knew at age 18? Show of hands, seeing none, I will close that. You are not even, you're six or something, 12. Yeah, but that's over 18. Listen, Simon. Simon just proved my point. Now Simon is known as the kid who got the question wrong, and it'll haunt him all of his days. Um, no, we're, we're going to forgive him for that. Uh, uh, but, but think about it. Think about how complex we truly are and how much we reduce not only ourselves. We're, we're terribly reductionistic in and of ourselves, how we view ourselves, what we think we're known for. Um, we do it to us before we do it to anybody else. And then how we reduce everyone around us, right? Um, it's, it's amazing uh, how, how the psychological impact that this can have on each of us to not be able to get over the hump of being known for either a mistake or some flaw that someone else has picked out in you or some flaw that you're overly self-conscious about, Right? And so how does that, being known for those kinds of things, how does that affect your ability to do what Christ died for you to be able to do? How does it affect your worship, right? Think about that for a second. Uh, We'll work on that. Dalton's working on the sound. But think about it. It sounds weird. Josh, can you help us out here? All right. So we're known, when we're known for these kinds of things, it's devastating to our worship because it's all we can think about. In any sermon that kind of lands anywhere close, we are hypersensitive to what either the preacher might be saying about us if he knew that thing about us, or what God may be saying to us because he knows that thing about us. Right? Think about how it affects your ability to love a neighbor. Most, most of us, our ethos is... They're just going to let, think about this. How many of you say this? There's no reason to try to be friends with those people. They're just going to let me down. Of course they are, because you do. And you don't like that being exposed, so it's just better to not even try. So we, oftentimes, we cut ourselves off from worship. We cut ourselves off from loving our neighbors because we would rather do nothing and let Whatever has defined us that is not supposed to be definitive of us, keep us from doing those things. And so it's very important that you take time and really think this through and remember how complex we are. And this is, the Lord has been working this out in me uh, in a very significant way with with people that, putting me in positions with people that um, I just don't naturally like. And it's not you, so none none of you have to kind of think through, wait a minute now. 
I invited him to my house two weeks ago. Right? It, but, but just not naturally like or maybe disagree with or kind of have a caricature of, right? These people are this way. This is the way they think. This is the way they vote. This is what they, what they think of the poor. This is what they think of this. This is what they think of that. And you know what's fascinating? I'm not always right. In fact, I'm wrong far more than I'm actually right. So what does that tell you? I probably shouldn't operate based on a limited subset or presupposition about someone because some of the people who I would probably not break bread with just naturally, I've had the opportunity to break bread with and hear their hearts of their children who've gone prodigal and of, of their desire for, for the church to actually do what the church was created to do, and, and they don't know how to make it work any better than I do. But, but we're all trying to follow Jesus in some way, shape, or form, and so I, I think we would, we would be much more... Um, we, in the passage that Josh quoted, Galatians 5, it says this. It says, don't return again to a yoke of slavery, but Jesus has died so that you could be set free. Set free so that you love your neighbor. And then it goes on to say, because if you don't, what you will do is devour one another. Is that not what we've been doing? Just devouring one another at at times, whether it was this election cycle or whatever your views on cryptocurrency are, or whatever your views on uh, the upcoming playoff game. Like if you're a huge UCF fan and you're going to protest in downtown Atlanta so everybody knows who the real national champion is, or it, whatever it may be, think about how we are so petty and so we're so quick to tear one another down. And yet we, if we are truly Christians, ought to be the opposite of that. We ought to be the people who give people the most runway and take the longest time to behold who someone really is and to love them well despite their frailty. And remember, Jesus did say this, the world will know who you are by the way you criticize and you tear down and you hold people's feet to the fire. They will know who you are by how you call them out for their sin and you withhold forgiveness because you have the keys, right? No, it's not what he said. He said, the world will know who you are by the love that you have for one another. Now, that's complex, and there's a lot of messiness there, and sometimes loving people, saying no, and calling out sin, which we'll get to. But sometimes loving people is also giving them plenty of runway and letting them know that Jesus loves them no matter what. And so, I want you to be thinking about you and how you are being affected in your worship and your love of others based on something that you're known for. And not to mention, how distorted are our views of ourselves? Right? Just the other day, I've got a pair of pants that I love from Eddie Bauer. They're the same size as all the other pants I have. With one exception, they don't fit anymore. And, and, and I did, I thought, I looked at myself, I was like, I think I've lost a little weight. Yeah, no, no doubt. <laughs> no, it's not true. It's not true. But, but in my mind, that's just a small example, but how, much, how distorted is our view of ourselves? Man, it is so wickedly distorted. And so we need, we need uh, somebody to say who we really are. And what I want you to see in this passage is how beautiful Jesus is and actually judging rightly. He doesn't not judge, just so we're clear. One of the mistakes you could make is read this passage and say, see, you're, we're not to judge anything. No, that's actually, that's not true at all. 
We are to rightly judge. And right judgment is through the person and work of Christ always. Not the starting point or the actual mistakes the person has made. So that all being said, let's turn to verses 36 through 39 and look at the defining marks of the lost, which is sin and judgment. If you would, pay close attention to the reading of God's word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he, being Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, that's a, that's a very important word. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, in the reading of God's word, we, we should be developing observational skills and recognize that no word is wasted. And what's interesting about this is we have yet heard the Pharisee's name. So pay close attention to when the Pharisee's name gets spoken. All we know is that a Pharisee has invited Jesus to his house. And it's interesting, who does Jesus say he normally eats with? Sinners. An accusation that's been lobbed at him. So if you go invite him to your house, what's, what is it that you're kind of confessing? If you've accused him of doing nothing but eating with those sinners. So Jesus is like, yeah, I'll take your invitation. Because this is going to go somewhere. You're going to see something. And what I don't want you to miss, and oftentimes we can be really hard on the religious people, know that God loves them too. Remember Saul? who becomes Paul. Remember, remember Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night. Remember all of the folks that, that Jesus longed and why this story goes on so long. Uh, the redemptive story, that is, is because God genuinely loves the hardest-headed and the hardest-hearted people of all, which oftentimes can be religious people. And so him eating in his house is a declaration of his actual genuine care for those who struggle with legalism. And we, too, should not define them solely by their legalism. Oftentimes, why is it that we're legalistic? What is often at the foundation of that? What idols? Safety and security. Right? We want a, we want a smaller world. Again, why does the lawyer ask, tell me the one thing? What's the one thing that I, I, I should do? aren't you asking the same thing often? What's the one, just give me the one camera, just tell us one thing, may it not be costly uh, in terms of time, money, or anything else, but what's, what's, kind of one, what's, the, what's the lowest bar to get into the kingdom? The lowest bar to get into the kingdom is the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. That's the lowest bar. You understand? And so, so here he is declaring to this Pharisee, I love you. Now, it's interesting that as he comes in and takes his place at the table, that Luke uses this term, and behold. It's something that Luke uses often. It's often in the the Gospels. It's oftentimes signals to us, pay close, extra close attention. Now, notice this woman is not named either. 
Now, it's, it's a good bet that it might be Mary, Martha's sister, the sister of Lazarus, because in John 11, it speaks of Mary as the one who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. However, that may not be the only person who did that. We don't know for 100% who this is, but that's a, probably a pretty good bet. And so, but she's not named, and her sin is not identified. It just says she's a woman of the city, a sinner which is interesting, many have said it's probably pointing to prostitution because if you're of the city and you're a woman and you're just kind of hanging out, that's probably what the main way to make money would have been. There's also a possibility that she worked with um, the slaughtering of pigs, which also would have been um, not been something that Pharisees would have been okay with. But the point is, they don't name it, or Luke doesn't point it out in Toto, and why? Because he wants for us to be able to associate with the lowest of the low. And you need to understand that a woman crashing a religious luncheon um, is really, really bad news in this era. And she actually could have been killed and no one would have batted an eyelash. She could have been stoned to death for showing up uninvited and engaging in what to many may have looked somewhat semi-sexual especially if she was a prostitute. Because again, you got to be honest, just like me, as you think about washing somebody's feet with your hair and oil, that sounds gross to me. That doesn't sound like worship at all, and praise God that we don't have to do that anymore. Um, but, but what she's saying is, she's saying that Isaiah 52, 6 and 7 is true. How beautiful the feet are those who bring the good news, and they should be clean. So this woman who is known for her sin, and think about that, that everywhere you go, everybody knows who and what you are, and you are welcome nowhere. And yet she stands behind Jesus and she weeps, and we don't know exactly what she put upon his feet and upon his head, but it probably cost her a pretty significant portion of her salary to purchase. And so she was willing to go all out to make sure that Jesus knew how much she appreciated his redeeming work in her life. And yet all the Pharisee can see, he can't behold, all he can see is that she is, not was, a sinner. He's completely blind to the person in front of him. Now this is where his judgment goes awry. What he is judging her as uh, is, is a permanent thing. He's saying she can never rise above her sin. She could never be delivered. She is not worthy of redemption, and therefore she is a sinner. And Jesus is going to deal with that here in just a moment, but he's going to make it clear, no, you have, judged, you have judged actually wrongly because what he's in fact saying is that Christ cannot redeem, which is completely against the scriptures and who Christ is. And so it's not that we shouldn't judge sin. It's not that we shouldn't say, hey, that's wrong. But what we should never do is say, no, you're too far. You're too far gone and you can't come back. We do not have that power. And when we try to exercise that kind of power, we are taking on the mantle of God, which is dangerous business, actually. And amazing that Jesus is going to deal with him in a loving way. So here we see that this woman who is known for her sin and is so lost without Jesus, yet is so willing to risk so much 
to anoint her Savior, to show him a hospitality, which we're going to discover that the Pharisee did not show him. Which, by the way, tells you everything that the Pharisee thought of him coming in. He was actually kind of putting him down like a butterfly to study him, to see, I've heard about this guy. And I'm not willing to actually offer him water for his feet or anointing for his head or any sort of refreshment. I'll let him eat at my table, but I'm testing this guy. And notice the sovereignty of God. Who provided the test? The Lord our God did. That this woman would come in and display something to this Pharisee. That he would, in fact, have to behold in a way that he had not planned for. And so his thoughts are wicked. And his judgment is zero sum. And that is not of our God. And so there there may be some ways in which you, you struggle with this with different kinds of people. Are there people for which you look at and you say, <laughs> you can't ever redeem them? They can, never, they can never be contributing members of society. They can never be a part of our church. They, they could, those folks, you just got to let them kind of burn. They're firewood. Well, is it true that there are some who are condemned to hell? Well, yeah, it's populated, and I hate that. But do we get to decide who that is that goes? In fact, every time it's discussed, it's discussed in a form that ought to kind of shake us and worry us a little bit that we may have it wrong just like we do lots of other things about people. And so if you in your heart are judging that there is a group of people who cannot be saved, I just want to say to you, you need to repent. And you may be thinking, I thought this was going to be encouraging. We'll get there. But you do, you need to repent. And you need to stop trying to be God because it's just going to wear you out. And it's not, it's going to rob you of being able to behold what the Lord our God can do in the life of a sinner. One who is lost, same distance, no matter what the sin is. And we need to pray that the Lord would give us redeemed vision. That we would be able to see the hope in the darkest of places. That we would be able to carry the light into the darkest of places. That we would be able to see where he is at work because he is sovereign and he is good. And to not pray for that is to, is to really to rob us of something. And again, I've been guilty of this from time to time. As I go through seasons of, of I feel like I hear the same thing from everybody. You just go through these seasons of people like, I don't, I don't, I don't have no desire to pray. I uh, appreciate you preaching every week, but I get nothing out of it. Uh, music sucks. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't appreciate uh, prayer. I, I just, I don't know what to do. So what am I supposed to say to that? Do more? No. Point them back to the cross and remind them that these means of grace are for you, to, to deliver you, to help you. And it is only hurting you, but it hurts the church too. Again, remember, we are only as strong as our weakest link, ultimately. And we get a lot of weak links, beginning with myself sometimes. And we need to be able to encourage each other in the beauty of in the fullness of the gospel, because sometimes it just feels like, what are we doing? What are, we, are we just turning our wheel? I mean, what, what are we doing? And yet, what we ought to meditate on is what Christ has done. In the fullness of what he set us free to do, what a beautiful thing that would be, wouldn't it? And so, listen to what G. Campbell Morgan says about this passage. He says, Simon could not see the woman as she then was for looking at her as she had been. Some of you can't see yourself for what you are becoming in Christ because all you do is meditate on what you have been. 
You live far too far in the past, a past that Christ has dealt with in full and uh, has affected the future that you have coming. Some of you, as you look at your children, you cannot see them for as they are and what they're becoming in Christ because you're so tangled up in some mistake they made. So you're so tangled up in something that they're not doing or not becoming, and yet you cannot see them with the redeemed vision that God has so gifted you with. Pray for that. Same thing for people you work with or neighbors. So much of our lostness is just scaredness. We're afraid. We're afraid to be known. We're afraid to be judged, right? What's, how, again, if we were to go out with a clipboard with one question, hey, what's the main defining characteristic of the church? What would they say? Judgment. These people judge us. I, I get more out of just going to my local bar and kind of sharing my heart, which is actually not true, but I, I get it, right? Uh, it is slightly different but it doesn't benefit. It's just kind of the wash, rinse, repeat. But again, so much of what we're known for is judgment. How will we be known for something different? And how will we be known for something different if we do not cultivate it and are active in doing it and are crying out to the Lord for him to display it in our midst and to grant it to us? Right? So are you weary of being known for your mistakes? Are you weary of, of, of kind of having to hash through and go over that one thing that just keeps you up at night, that haunts you, that just shows up out of nowhere. It's been interesting as I've been studying for this. I've had some stuff show up out of nowhere in the deep of the night that has haunted me and has sh- I can't fix. It happens, right? You're weary of being known for your mistakes. Are you uncomfortable with how gracious God is to his people? Are you uncomfortable with some of the people that he saves? Are you uncomfortable with some of the people that he calls as pastor? And if so, why? And what does that say about your understanding of the gospel? So let's turn back to the text and see verses 40 through 50, the defining marks of the forgiven, the worship of God and the love of others. And again, pay close attention after what we've heard. And take note of when the Pharisee's name gets spoken. Now, remember, the Pharisees just had this thought, right? That Jesus, if he knew who she was, he would not let her touch him. Because she is filthy and she is foul. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon. Simon, not the Pharisee, not the unknown one, but Simon. He calls his name, he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon very wisely says, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then he goes and he turns toward the woman and he said to Simon, and this is, this is beautiful, do you see this woman? Do you see her now after what you have just rightly judged? And he says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her hair 
and her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which you have rightly judged are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he, notice what he said, but he, not she, but he who loves little or is forgiven little, or is forgiven little loves little. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. What a beautiful thing that Jesus does here in calling this man's name. What does that tell you? He's saying, Simon, I know you. I know your heart. I know your thoughts. And yet I have chosen to dine at your house. And I have chosen to bear with you when you have judged so poorly the circumstance. And I have chosen to stay even after you failed in any way, shape, nor form to be hospitable to me. These would have been common things that anybody in the Middle East would have done at this time. The the washing of their feet because they went around with just walking in dirt and dung and all kinds of things. So their feet were nasty and oftentimes cracked and, and could be infected. And so he failed to do that. He failed to anoint the head. Uh, of, of Christ, which is what he should have done to say, I honor you, my guest. He failed to kiss him because to kiss someone is to recognize them as friend. So straight away, Simon the Pharisee made it very clear what he thought of Jesus, didn't he? You're not worthy of the basic hospitalities. And yet the Lord in his sovereign mercy sends this woman to expose how deep the sin of Simon and how much deeper the love of God. And so here Jesus is not condemning him to hell, but trying to help him to see, Simon, your heart is so much darker than you think, and you are in so much greater need of a Savior than you have recognized, and I am right here before you. I love that he says, because obviously Simon saw the woman, because he described the circumstance. But he says to him, no, no, no. Do you see her? Now, and here's the implications of that. She, who you rightly have observed, has sinned much, sure. She loves much. And she gets how beautiful the feet are, those who bring the good news. And she is not unwilling to abase herself in worship. Far greater than any of us who are like, I I don't want to get caught off key and be like, in the middle of some crazy song, we got this crazy cadence going on. So I'm just not going to, I'm not going to participate at all. I don't, want, I don't want to say the wrong thing praying for somebody because Lord knows he can't, he can't fix that. Once you say it, it sticks, right? Because you have that kind of autonomy and power. Sarcasm. No, you don't. I don't, I don't want to share my faith because I, I'm so messed up. You've got to be perfect to share your faith with people. <laughs> really? Well, then we will do no mission whatsoever. Ever. If that's the case. And yet we have so much to share, so much to give, and we keep our light under a bushel. And yet Jesus is calling us, come out of darkness. Come into the marvelous light that is your redemption and your forgiveness and live that out in a way that blesses everybody around you. Now again, I know in a room full of introverts, what you just heard 
was you got to go start knocking on doors and get crazy. It's got to get radical up in here, right? Some David Platt-level nonsense. <laughs> no disrespect to David Platt. He's a wonderful, he has a wonderful heart for missions, but that's more often than not, it's going to be way more to the Michael Horton side of the coin and just be ordinary. Or Julie Canalis, who writes uh, Theology of the Everyday. And so it's, it's, it's probably not going to be all that radical sometimes. Sometimes it's going to be God brings it all the way to you, and you shouldn't miss it. It's a softball. And, and sometimes, yeah, you got to cultivate, but, but what, what are we doing? Do we get what we've been saved for? Do we get how much we have sinned? I'm not big on worm theology, and I don't want us to beat ourselves up, but that's the beauty. That's actually what magnifies the love of God is to have some recognition of just how rotten you are apart from the gospel. But in the gospel, and this is the good news, this is where worm theology comes unglued. In the gospel, you are son or daughter of the Most High God, and everything, everything is yours because you are an heir to all things that God created. Don't come over to my house trying to take some of my bushes because it's not reallocation. Um, I don't really have any bushes, but uh, so, um, but you get what I'm saying, that we have so much more that we could be living in and living out. It's not about adding anything to our lives. It's about changing perspective. It's about being able to see how important it is. Remember, when does heaven break out in a party? How many? One, which probably tells you it may be slow going at times, especially in America, where everybody either thinks they're a Christian or couldn't care less, right? We've polarized pretty significantly, which actually is the sovereignty of God. What does that help us to do? It helps magnify the grace of God. We have a wonderful opportunity actually to share, and the days are not somehow worse. They're actually in some measure better for us to share if we would just be able to see and behold as one who is redeemed ought to see and behold. And notice how he turns to the woman and he says, your faith, not her works. She was not saved because she washed his feet. She was not saved because she risked her life. She was not saved because she acknowledged that he is the savior in terms of in front of other people. It was her faith. It was her faith that she knew the good news already. She came in forgiven and was actually displaying worship and love for those around her because of her forgiveness. And so therefore, and these are such wonderful words, and they should resonate with so many of us, because so many of you would love to be able to go in peace, to walk out of here today in some measure of peace, reconciled to God and be able to enjoy that. You, you long for that. And as Francis Schaeffer says, we're all broken uniquely. We're all broken psychologically, physically. I mean, it's, it's all over the place, and we don't, you know, you may say, well, why am I broken this way and you're not broken that way? Well, maybe God knows you can handle it and I can't. And so that's not the way to solve that equation. But we're all broken. We're all in need of this. And we all have sinned much. And we all need to recognize how great the grace of our God so that we would be defined by these marks, worship and love of neighbor. It'll be messy. We're not going to get it right all the time. Not everybody's going to buy into what we offer, right? Uh, some things that have gone on behind the scenes that you guys don't often get to see, Josh and Matt uh, have gone out on a limb 
for, for a gentleman that uh, ended up rejecting the job that he was offered that could really have genuinely changed his life. And their tendency was to see that man as unredeemable. And I'm, we've had this conversation, but more, I try to tell them, no, this is maybe a Matthew 25 type situation that you'll get to heaven and find out, no, in fact, Jesus was operating in this man. You just didn't get to see the fullness of it until the other side. So do not give up. Do not draw back or grow weary in doing good. And it was beautiful for me as pastor to witness them trying to love somebody. And I knew it wasn't going to work. And, but I just couldn't tell them. Because I, I felt the Lord saying, you keep your hand over your mouth. And let them learn. Let them see. Let them witness. And you, you see. And there's things like that that are happening so often that we, we, we could celebrate more probably, but we also don't want to turn people into projects and, and notches. They're people. They're human. And so, um, so listen to what Charles Simeon says about this. Our Lord, both in the parable and in his address to the woman, showed, or shewed, as the British might say, that no sinner, listen, No sinner, however vile, should be spurned from his feet. He even declared to her accusers and revealed to her own soul that he had pardoned her sins. Henceforth, then let no man despair of obtaining mercy at his hands. Only let us acknowledge to him our inability to pay our own debt. And he will say to us, as to the woman, depart in peace Thy sins are forgiven thee. So how much have you truly been forgiven of? You even comprehended that? I mean, I, I don't, don't wind up in therapy going over this stuff. or like, don't, don't get yourself sideways, but, but it's really important. And, and we should not just grovel over our stuff because it's to be put as far as the east is from the west. God's not going to bring it up. But it is important, I think, sometimes for us to pause and go, man, what have I been saved from? And then what are some ways this affects your worship of God and love of others? How forgiven you are is affecting this. If you're bitter about something that the Lord has not provided for you, you're going to have a hard time worshiping and loving other people. If if you don't get that your forgiveness is the single greatest gift and everything else after that is just just either bonus or pales in comparison, you're you're going to miss the ability to worship in spirit and truth. You are. And if, if you hinge things on things that you just don't even know about, as we talked about last week, like my UPS job that was going to change everything, or moving to Macon that was going to change everything, and yes, it did, and, 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 and becoming a pastor was going to be so much easier than physical therapy. I'd like to go back to hurting people for money, actually. No, I, I, I do love this. And, and it, but it, it, there's no way to know how hard it's going to be, is it? Any of this stuff. And so, so how, does, how does it affect your forgiveness? How does that set you free to be able to operate in a way that brings glory to the Lord our God and joy to you and your heart and peace for which you are called to go in every time you're reminded of your forgiveness? So what do we learn from Luke 7, 36 through 50? What teaches us that in Christ, we will neither be known for our sin or for our judgmental nature. We will not be known for those things if we are redeemed. 
But we should be known for our worship of God and love of others. If you don't cultivate those things, there's no way for them to grow. It just doesn't come natural, does it? It doesn't. And so we have to be cultivators. We have to be active in these things. So as I pray for us this morning, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're struggling, for, struggling in what it is that you're known for and you're, you're having a hard time uh, being able to appreciate the fullness of your forgiveness, grab one of us, elder, deacon, myself, uh, Bonnie, any, anybody that, Josh, anybody on stage, anybody that looks like they might can pray um, and have them pray for you. Don't leave here. Don't go out of here without hearing you have been forgiven. Go in peace. Your faith is what is going to sustain you, not your mistakes, not these other things. And so if we can, if we can love you well this morning, help us to do that. We, we can't always know what everybody's going through. And so if you would grab one of us and let, let, us, let us serve you. And if you need more than that, there's some sort of um, further conversation that needs to be had. This is why I took this job is to stand in the hard places. It is not a waste of my time. People actually don't vie very much for my time. Probably because they're slightly scared of me. They could wind up a sermon illustration or something. I mean, there may be something to that, right? And I'm critical and I eat chicken wings by the pound. and That's why my pants don't fit and all that stuff, right? But we're here, we genuinely want to help you through and have that conversation uh, with you and, and help you to see that Christ is good or to discover he's not there so you can go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you will die. Not tomorrow exactly, but you get it, right? And so we would rather you know that Christ is real and God is there and he loves us. And he says it so loudly and so softly and yet are we listening are we seeing? Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you that we who have sinned so, so, so much have been forgiven of so much and that we have the opportunity to love much. But God, you know we are frail, which is why you give us your Holy Spirit. You wouldn't have given us the Holy Spirit if we had it all together at salvation. You would not have given us the fullness of your word and the and the the service of the church itself if we had it all together and we didn't need anything further. See, salvation is but the beginning for us. And so much has to be cultivated and so much has to be thought through and so much has to be done in community and yet we're so afraid that somebody may know us. We're so afraid that, that, that somebody may not like us like they should or we'd long for them to. We're so afraid of rejection that we would sit instead on the ash heap feeling safe and secure in that which is causing us destruction. God, set us free from that. Give us redeemed vision so that as we look upon our children, as we look upon our neighbors, as we look upon our spouses, as we look upon those we work with, as we look at the news reports from the world, that we would recognize that the only hope that we have is you moving in any and all of those things and you are moving if we could but see it. Help us to hear of your love. Help us to hear afresh of our forgiveness. God, would you be gracious and merciful to us this morning as we come before you? Would you grant to us in the various times of trouble that each of us has, both mercy and grace, so that we could go out rejoicing and in peace? God, I pray that there would be many who would depart from here this morning, having heard the words, your sins are forgiven, go in peace, that that would be true of their hearts and their minds. 
even if it's but a glimmer, but a crack, and maybe a hardness or a darkness that has descended upon them. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for gathering us together. Thank you for the beauty and the construction of your word and all that it says to us. May we be those who are students of your love for us so that we could display your glory in this broken world. In Christ's name, amen.